Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by the Michael Dolce 2019 Masterclass Tour. Hi guys, Michael Dolce here to announce my Masterclass Tour for 2019. Um, it has already kicked off and I'm looking forward to bringing it to a town near you. This particular time around, I'm dedicating the sessions to an open style topic. So basically, you guys as the players will dictate how the Masterclass will run. The classes are open for intermediate to advanced players. And as per usual, I always strive to make the classes non-intimidating. There's a whole heap of jam in. If you'd like some more information on the classes, please visit my website at www.michaeldolcemusic. And I hope to see you guys there. Cheers for now. Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name's Matt Wakeling, and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I get to speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 118. Now today I'm speaking to Sydney-based gypsy jazz guitarist Cameron Jones. Cameron fronts up his own trio, playing music in the gypsy jazz style. He's also in a number of ensembles and is the artistic director of the Oz Minouche Festival. Now that festival is an annual event, takes place up in Brisbane and brings some of the leading gypsy jazz guitarists and musicians from all around the world and Australia into one place over three action-packed days. I had a great conversation with Cameron. Not only did I learn about his own fantastic career and his travels around the world pursuing this style, but I found out a lot about uh, the actual instruments required and a bit more about the history, some of the leading Australian practitioners and luthiers, and much, much more. So let's get straight into our interview with Cameron Jones. Cameron Jones, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. This has been a while in the making. So, um, yeah, I've been really looking forward to catching up. Yeah, thanks. We've, yeah, we've both been um, running around a little bit, I guess. Yeah. We have. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that, but we're both in Europe at the same time, it sounds like. Yeah, which is yeah. cool. Um, let's go back there. What what inspired you to pick up guitar in the first place? Okay, um, I was about 10 years old, I think, and... Uh, my folks were having like a clean up around the house and I had a bunch of stuff stored in the, the roof of the house, you know, like a little attic space. Uh-huh. And so I had to like, you know, dad was passing me the boxes from the ladder, you know, and um, he passed me down a guitar, which was my mum's. Um, she played, not she didn't play very long. I guess she played for a few months back when she was probably around my age. And it was actually like a, it wasn't. A, it was like a Hawaiian guitar. I think the Hawaiian guitar was kind of big in the in the uh, I guess late fifties, early sixties. Um, and I didn't know it was, but it was this horrible um, army surplus green color. Okay. Uh, and and it was like someone had waved a, a flame under it and over the whole wow. surface area of the body. So it had this sort of wavery, burnt sort of. You know how like if you get a candle and you put it on some paper, you get that wavy kind. Yeah, of, yeah. It was like that. Wow. And I didn't, yeah, but I didn't know it was a, a Hawaiian guitar until much later. So when you say Hawaiian, do you mean like for playing slide on or? Yeah, okay. it was like a normal guitar, but the strings were maybe two centimeters off the fretboard. Yeah, right. And I didn't. Mum put it on the lap. You play it like this. So I'm like, no, no, you play it like you know. I've seen a Presley movie or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's like, okay, whatever. But you know, it was. Um, it had like four strings on it. The 
tunas were frozen and I just sort of bashed away on that for a few years and um, it was kind of, yeah, I just liked having it around and um, and it wasn't until like a, a neighbourhood friend actually brought a guitar over and was like, oh, wow, I can actually play, push the strings down and yeah. you can actually make a sound and that's a pretty sound, you know. Um, <laughs> That's pretty. That's pretty yeah. tough to learn to yeah. play conventional guitar. I was on just a, trying to like make sounds on it, and it was just a doing, doing. <laughs> and it just whatever it was just frozen in this horrible, yeah. um, horrible <laughs> position, you know. Yeah, and I've still got it. Um, it's pretty funny. I had visions of restoring it, but it's just beyond. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> it kind of dried out in the roof, and it's all cracked up and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. What, what, <laughs> And what were you trying to play? What were you trying to oh, make the strings reach the fretboard to do? Probably like whatever was on the radio, I think. Okay. Yeah. Really. I remember being, I remember like really liking um, Pseudo Echo and like Duran Duran as a kid, like 80s kid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like countdown kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. No, I remember that stuff well. Um, yeah. But it wasn't until high school that I sort of, we rented one from the school and we had a little guitar group thing once a, once a more, one morning a week for however, however long it was. And yeah, it was a long, um, a long drawn out process. Um, cause yeah, there, were, I just didn't have a clue and, um, you know, you get this guy's attention in the group session, you know, sort of know a C chord and a G chord and, and yeah, it wasn't really, yeah. I had very limited kind of scope for a long time, um, and just you know, kids showing showing me ACDC riffs in between, um, you know, breaks in the kind of songs that we were playing, like playing little folky tunes like Crowded House and you know Paul McCartney's Mullican Tire and stuff like that, three chord kind of folky pop songs, um, and then while the kids, other kids, the cool older kids were playing, you know, Back in Black and TNT and what's that? You know, that was that was the that was the, the cool guy was um, asserting dominance with his ACDC riffs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that was yeah, that was kind of my start. And um, much later on in high school, I got lessons with a local guy, and um, would walk to his house once a once a week and um, get lessons and learn to read and um, went from there. Um, I remember having to start all over again, actually, because this, um, actually, if I backtrack, I saw a teacher in between, um, and he was teaching tablature, um, and then there was a parent, when I started with a new teacher, um, I didn't have any timing, I didn't have any, I didn't know what a beat was. Okay. <laughs> I could play your kind of, you know, your, your riffs and stuff, and, you know, but I didn't know how to playing in time um so basically he just went look mate you've got to start all over again and i was maybe 14 or something and it was devastating so we had to you know get the mel bay book out and learn how to okay okay count count you know um semi breeves and stuff yeah so, so i just kind of had to read to, properly yeah yeah i had to strip, strip, strip the machine down and start again um yeah. Which was yeah hard as a thinking I knew everything at fourteen. You yeah, because you had just some <laughs> <ACDC moves. laughs> Yeah, my you know, had my yeah yeah had the Paradise City and my you know 
traveling Ulbreeze and stuff yeah, yeah. from well, the that, early 90s and stuff yeah. that's a good bunch of riffs too man <laughs> yeah 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 but that was like you know like the I see to my students now they know that one riff and they can't string the song together I was I was one of those yes you know, yeah yeah a handful of songs a little you know snippets but not a full um a full thing <laughs> yeah. not a full song <laughs> not a full concept of what a song was we've yeah. all been there it's all good <laughs> yeah 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 so what yeah. um What's the line between that, yeah, getting getting some rhythm, getting some reading together, and then um, delving into the world of gypsy jazz? Oh, it's kind of a huge arc, you know, because yeah. um, this is all pre-internet stuff. Um, so I kind of, um, you know, I was a little rock metal kid in in those days. After you know, after the folk thing, I discovered you know Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Metallica yeah, yeah. and all that stuff, and I was trying to play that, and then later on, and um, playing in sort of indie rock metal bands, and sort of having a go, trying to um, put bands together and play gigs and um, things like that. But actually, during high school, there was um, like a jazz band um, that the teachers had set up, or well, was a great music teacher that was there at my high school, and I auditioned, but I wasn't actually good enough to get in um, because I just had no, like I said, I had my skills were really limited, but I was kind of interested in playing with people. Um, but he gave me a bunch of tunes that they, the, those kids were doing and it's all kind of like Miles Davis kind of blue era kind of stuff, you know, like okay, so what cool. and um, was uh, Freddie's Pretty Freeloader and all yeah. blues and, and, you know, maybe the Cantaloupe Island and stuff because those guys were an existing band or older and um, they kind of just, I guess they formed a jazz band from that and I was kind of, kind of player, you know. But he gave me all the music and um, and recordings. He, he dubbed a tape for me and I took it to my tapes room. That sort of started my kind of interest in playing jazz guitar. But um, That's cool. That happened, yeah. It happened in parallel with the kind of rock stuff and the metal stuff as well. It was kind of, um, I was, you know, mucking around with the jazz stuff on the side but kind of interested in it because of the depth of knowledge that you could get from yeah, it yeah sure interesting That's... sounds that are beyond you know beyond what you know the harmony in, in jazz music and stuff like that That's, That's a really good gateway as well that that era of miles um as, yeah as well I think I've said this before with with some other jazz players who who seem to head in the same sort of way and the cantaloupe island yeah that modal thing where you can just sit on yeah. a a flavor for a while before you shift exactly exactly you don't have to think about um changing the the heart the key center every two four bars or whatever yeah yeah but there's enough in it to keep you yeah and for the bass yeah the bass they did arrangements with they had a really good bass player so the bass was bass and the drummer were really quite rather than being quite funky together really like pushed everybody to oh yeah became like this funky kind of 70s thing and the guy was really into um he was into that and diffusion so he kind of pushed them in that direction which was really cool nice but sort of was like you know yearning to be into that yeah. <laughs> so yeah, from that failure you yeah, become this person <laughs> um yeah and then you know like um not being you know having lessons and stuff but wanting to dig deeper into into what music is how to how it works and how to play guitar. I, uh, there were these um, uh, courses at the conservatorium, which I was doing um, 
when I was in my early 20s. It was like, it's now called the Open Academy. Back then it was called like Access Centre. Oh, okay. Actually, I think I went to some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, cool. Like an after hours class. After hours. I think it was like designed for like working musicians to build their skills up and stuff. um, Because I think I'm going to be, my timeline's probably off, but within say 10 years of that, um, the jazz program had been in its infancy, like, you know, George Goller and, um, sorry, names are escaping me, but those guys were teaching and they weren't, they didn't have degrees. So the guys, the first generation of that con jazz uh, course were not university trained musicians. They were kind of, they learnt it from playing and performing and having to do it on the, on the professionally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that was kind of to fill the, the gap for guys like me to get into university courses. I think that's kind of, I could be wrong, but that's kind of um, my understanding of it. Um, and I used to, so I was a tradesman in, from my, you know, early twenties to, um, to my, you know, I guess mid thirties. And, um, so I would do those after hours. I, I did the theory class and a whole bunch of improv classes. And later on it was like ear training and basic arranging and stuff. It's really fun. And I remember, um, like I was like, you know, would finish work covered in sort of grease and stuff and. <laughs> I'd be kind of, yeah. I'd be kind of, I'd be kind of like um, self-conscious of that, so I'd like change my clothes and like you know drive. It was literally I worked out at Western Sydney, so I'd drive, you know, and change my clothes in a service station and scrub the grease off my hands, <laughs> and then you know get there just in time because yeah, in the city yeah. it was when um, the co actually this is so far longer. They were rebuilding the con, they were renovating it. Oh, okay, yeah. So there was like they had office space in. Hunter Street, I think it was, or Pitt Street. Oh, right. right. Uh, yeah, near, 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 I think so, yeah. It was called the Hunter Connection. I don't know, it was like an office building. They just had a couple of floors of that for um, classes, and they had the library there, and they had um, practical classes out at um, Redfern at the technology park. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I just sort of, yeah, I remember yeah, there, yeah. spend up to like two hours in traffic, <laughs> you know, driving, <laughs> <laughs> and um. You know, and then you'd have to sort of wait for the, the tutor in the outside and the guy would let you into the um, office space because, you know, after hours, everything's locked down. And one day I was like super late. It was some sort of accident or something. And um, by the time I got there, everything was, um, everyone had gone up, you know, so I actually, you know, picked the lock on the fire, fire escape. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like panicking. Oh, this is really, you know, my highlight of my week is doing yeah. this. And I really <laughs> loved exploring chords and harmony, and and I was really fascinated by it. And I was so let down. Like, oh, how am I going to get in? Oh, that's right. I can do this. <laughs> so, I, I, um, yeah, I can tell people about that now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah there's, there's a statue of limitations. And, he, and I just kind of just, you know, I did that and raced up the stairs and kind of casually walked in. And oh, here you go. <laughs> and they, they didn't know about it and I lived, so it was fine. And, nice. and, and no one knew, you know. Um, it was pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I did that for, yeah. I, did, I guess I did those concourses for like seven years. I just didn't, I just kept wow, at it. that's awesome. Um, because they were doing them on Saturdays and eventually I could do like a whole music day on Saturday. I'd sort of get there early when it opened and, would take over a room and practice and, you know, do my classes and then practice until they kicked me out kind of thing. And that kind of period, I kind of got all the scales and chords and 
some repertoire down and stuff. Wow, that's excellent, man. That's so yeah, cool. it's a long, it's a long-winded story. Oh, it's good um, though. I, I do, yeah. like I said, I remember those courses. I did a couple of them on yeah, uh, yeah. a couple of improv ones, and I can't remember my teacher. He was a horn player, lovely man. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. I had I had a horn player. His name was um, uh, Webb. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's very cool. Now, so how did the uh, the gypsy jazz thing come? Okay, in? yeah, okay. Were um, you into this when you were at the con, or no? Because this is all pre-internet. I had no idea about it. This was. I guess what what when that was happening was probably about early two thousands, late nineties. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I met a guy that was playing bass um, for a, a workshop for singers in the city. This really tall Italian guy, um, really elegant kind of guy. Um, and um, one day he invited me to to come along to it, uh, and that was it. It's now a bed and breakfast. But it's in, it was placed in Chippendale, and there was an old school band there, and um, they let me sit in, and um, it was from doing that. It was kind of um, actually playing jazz, I guess. I mean, the classes were great, but you'd get an hour, hour and a half of playing, you know, jazz, you know, uh, with the breaks or whatever to talk about stuff. But this was like um, 15, 20 singers playing two songs each for three hours, you know. Sometimes you wouldn't get a little break. You'd just – they'd just hammer them through. And it was a, a run by a lady um, – named Kate Dunbar, um, and she was like a, a jazz singer, blues singer, I guess, jazz blues singer in the vein of sort of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. Uh-huh. Great. And sadly, yeah, she passed away about 93, two years ago, three years ago. Um, and there was a great drummer there by the name of Ted Sly and um, space player, and there was a guitar player by the name of um, David Blankhorn, and he was, uh, he, was, he was a fantastic guitar player, like a jazz old school jazz guitar player and um yeah they said sit down here go, go ahead you know and they put the chord chart in front of me and they counted in and i just went whoa how do you how do you do this you know <laughs> so everything <laughs> it was actually like the practical experience of that was like oh this is not this is not miles davis this is you know you can't just play you gotta play different you know chords and a different style like this constant swing feel and um and then fit in with the singer and you're working in chords that aren't necessarily, uh, keys that aren't necessarily guitar or even horn friendly. You're doing yeah, singer right. keys, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the key, the, the chord charts were written by sort of amateur, amateur musicians. So um, these guys knew all the songs and they often would look at the chart and go, nah. And they just, they did their own version of it. And it was like, okay, they're not playing that minor chord. What they're doing there? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's happening between them, you know, the major chord and the minor chord. Oh, a diminished chord. Oh, okay, cool. You know. right. they, they, they were making chord substitutions and on the fly and you have to pick it up. And it was really, it was the hardest thing. It was like learning a language without knowing how to um, speak it, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so one day I walked into the workshop where, I, you know, they let me, you know, mercifully they just let me sit there and strum on the chords, you know. I just turned the, you know, turned my little, I had a little, um, Epiphone Sheraton 335 and I just sat there and wound the volume knob down and just trying to soaking it up and trying to figure it out and they let me come every every week <laughs> um, and then nice. anyway one day I walked in and then um, David was there with his brother John um, and John was playing um, what I now know is a gypsy jazz guitar um, and I'd only really seen one in an old um, in a guitar book I got for Christmas it was like a picture of 
It's called the Guitar Player's Handbook. Did you ever come across that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't yeah. remember the author. Uh, Denya, Ralph Denya, I think, anyway. Yeah, cool. In the front section, there's a whole bunch of great guitar players, you know, Frank Zappa, Eddie, uh, Eddie Van Halen, and, you know, Nofler, um was probably before by um, Lee Santana. But in the first part, there was a Django, Pitchell Django and the Quintet, or the Quintet de Hot Club de France, and they were playing these summer guitars and a brief story of the, the, the man and what happened to him and the instruments. And that's that's my only reference point. Okay. Went, that's one of those that's one of those that's one of those guitars. And he went, Yes, sure, man, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um and that's kind of the the starting point. Because those two were actually playing with a guy called um Ian Date. Um he's a great Australian um jazz guitarist, I'd please say he's one of the greatest, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were playing with him with, and George Wash Machine and um, in that kind of uh, gypsy swing, gypsy jazz style, um, probably before anybody were doing it, was doing it. Um, and, that yeah, so he was just um, – John was in town, I think, and came with that acoustic guitar. Um, ironically, I, I ended up buying the guitar he was playing it. Oh, yeah, really? I've actually still got it. Oh, yeah. that's so good. Yeah, so that's where I kind of, you know, then from there I got, I sort of substituted the Epiphone for, a, you know, I was using a Maton just to keep up, just so I get more of an acoustic sound. And then yeah, yeah. eventually I bought that. Um, it was a, it was like a, the D-hole version of the, it's like the McAfee style. Okay, yeah. I can, I can nerd out for another podcast about McAfee style, but it was like the first iteration of that guitar, right. um, which is at a large sound hole it was in the shape of a D. It had 12 frets to the body, so it was kind of designed to be a loud classical guitar, mm-hmm. but with still strings. I think that's my my understanding of it. Uh, that was the original kind of intention. Um, so I bought that guitar and, yeah, kind of it was like a slow slow process, you know, because there's no one to play with, and those guys were kind of pros and, and you know, I, they, they were just – we just didn't. I live. I was in Western Sydney. They were on the east side somewhere. I was, you know, just couldn't get across there. So I just kind of did it independently for a long time. Okay. Can yeah. we can we talk a little bit about the guitars? Um, yeah, sure. Because I've my my understanding of the style is really narrow. I've got a Django album somewhere. I love the sound of it. Okay. Um, cool. I, I know sure. he was the pioneering guy, but yeah, I got so yeah. many questions. So with the guitars. Sure. Um, so there's the Selma and McAfee. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. Before, okay. So I guess we uh, have to go back a little bit. So in the say 20s and 30s, there were these nightclubs in France where um, um, it was uh, there were accordion players and this instrument called a bal musette, which is like a French bagpipe. Um, and in fact, the accordion players sort of took over because they were so loud the bow the sort of the bagpipe thing got superseded and it got replaced by a, um, a banjo guitar so it's a six string guitar with a band with a banjo head on it because um, basically there was no amplification the amps weren't even invented at that point 
and these guys would kind of have to they'd go into the nightclub like a you know, sort of dance hall kind of thing. They'd climb up to the sort of stage above everybody and play over the top of them, and the sound would sort of permeate across um, across them. Um, so the, just the, the it's like an arms race of trying to find the um, the loudest guitar that you could. Yeah, right. And it's from the same kind of uh, thinking of the national guitar of trying to get uh, a louder instrument. It's the same idea. Yeah. So, um, so and that was happening in the states, I guess. Yeah, at, I guess they, they happened independently of each other. Mm. Like the Americans were doing the steel guitar thing, and the, um, the Europeans were doing timber stuff. Um, yeah, right. And during that time, there were a lot of uh, European, uh, sorry, Italian luthiers in Paris. Um, I can't remember the exact reason. There was probably more work for them in Paris and in Italy, um, and they were basically ma- making guitars for people. And um, so there was a classical guitarist by the name of Mario Macaferri, who was also uh, interested in luthery and trying to get the loud, the arms race for the loud, the loud guitar kind of thing. Um, so he designed this guitar that I was talking about before. It's got... Um, so it's kind of like you're, uh, um, yeah, it's got a, a top that's slightly bent in the middle. So instead of having an arch top that's carved, it's a flat piece of wood that's sort of bent like a pyramid. Like oh, a slight, okay. There's a slight wow. crank in the top. And he also did internal resonators inside. I made a timber, like a bent timber around the sound hole as well in, in order to try and produce more sound. And the, the first iteration of that was the... Um, the D-hole version, and he, okay. uh, from my, probably, you're probably going to get emails from all the, you know, the <laughs> about, about my uh, knowledge, um, but anyway, he went into partnership with the Selma Saxophone Company, they were looking for, I guess, to create, and they, they create a guitar market, and they worked together for a while making that guitar, uh, and then there was demand from, um, from England, actually, about wanting a 14-fret guitar and for some reason they, those two had a falling out I can't remember why um, but when he left um, they started making a 14 fret guitar with, with a oval hole which is sort of the more popular one I guess you'd say mm-hmm. um, and and that's kind of that that's kind of the legacy of that it has um, it still had a bent top on the like a slight bend in the top heat, like a heat bent okay. kind of thing and it's got a tailpiece like a violin or a jazz guitar, and it's strung over a, a, a bridge made of rosewood that's hollowed out. So it's quite – it's just designed to project sound. Uh, and as soon as these came out, um, they kind of destroyed the um, popularity of the six-string banjo. Yeah, right. Yeah, wow. But he was among a few – Those the samples were the most popular, but there's a whole bunch of other ones like Tugman. But uh, Bissato and um, Anastasio and Demoro, but they're all based in Paris and they're all they're all luthiers of Italian descent. So all, that's kind of a fascinating kind of angle on it. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah. So nowadays, um, some of the guitars are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, mainly because of the period of you know, the popularity of Django and Reinhardt using them and, and being the golden age of that kind of sound. So. Um, most most of us play replicas made by luthiers. Um, okay. Yeah. There are, there are some um, factory made ones from China, but they're not quite 
up to parsonically yeah there's probably too much paint on them and the, the, the tops aren't bent we just kind of mass produced um yeah right and and what's your go-to uh guitar in um okay so i've got a, a one by a guy in sydney called Piers crocker oh yeah great um he also yeah if people might know him from um he makes the guitar that tim rogers from you and my place yeah yeah i had no he idea he made acoustics and yeah, and he makes he makes those. These in he particular, makes, wow. Uh, ukuleles, and he makes that he makes a Gretsch kind of, not a Gretsch, Rickin, like an early Rickenbacker style single cutaway. Okay. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, uh, Tim Tim Rogers kind of kicked that off. And I think um, Ian Hope from Powderfingers got one. Oh, okay, yeah. He's got like a twelve-string one that he was playing in the church. I know this because when I was getting mine made, that was being made. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, but nice. the cool thing about these guitars, if you tap the top and put your hand over the sound hole, like you can feel the air pushing out of the oh, guitar really? body. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So, anyway, ironically, so what this is like a thing with me and the Blankhorns and Ian Date, but um, when I bought that guitar off, uh, off David Blankhorn, um, I had it for ages and I gave him like a, a deposit and, and, um, and I didn't see him because he was so busy and he, he rang me up and went, look, I need the rest of that money, but instead of giving me the cash, can you drop it into Piers Crocker? Because so, <laughs> that was funding that was funding the build, you know, of, yeah, um, right. yeah. of his guitar. Yeah. So I went I went down there and at the time he had a – he was right on that, that sort of guitar strip. He was at the back of the – what was the record shop, Vintage Record Cafe, oh, like a little shoebox. Yeah, in Annandale. He had this shoebox-sized yeah. um, uh, – you know, atelier or, you know, <laughs> workshop. Um, <laughs> and he had a six of them on the go, which wow. which some of them I, I played with all I, – I literally played with everybody that had that guitar. Uh, um, we were having the guitar from that batch. It's bizarre. But I um, gave him the money and it's like, oh, one day I'll I want one of those. So three days, so three years ago I finally stumped up the courage and the money to, to buy one. And and it's, it's literally that thing where you buy an instrument and it – it improves your playing or it pushes you into a better, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just haven't looked back and it's just really improved my playing. I've no longer fighting and the instrument and, um, you know, the more I give to it, the better it, it, it sounds. And yeah, it's just one of those things gives back, you know, I don't know how to, sure. it's just yeah, kind yeah. of, it's just pushed me further. It's like having, you know, when you get the right instrument, it's, um, yeah, it opens up so many things, and it's just been amazing having that guitar. Just, I just wish I'd done it five, ten years earlier. <laughs> but I was just kind of because they were pretty. It was pretty expensive for me, and and I didn't think I was worthy of it yet. You know, I still got some miles to go before I stump up the cash. You know, um, yeah. But I'm glad I I have it now. It's, yeah, that's heaps cool. It's, um, yeah, that's great. Now, tonally, these guitars as well. They they sound like a, another planet from a flat top um there's a yeah. real growl and um, yeah there's a real attitude Definitely. about them is it, that's part of the, yeah. the setup yeah i guess it's it's sonically it comes it comes from that you know like i was saying about the arms race to get the loud thing uh loud sound it's just developed from there and there was there are strings that were designed specifically for it um which are made of silver plated copper on the bass side. Okay. Wow. Um, and it's uh, so it's designed so that 
rhythmically there's a decay there it doesn't doesn't ring so much but when you play um a melody it'll project mm-hmm. i guess that's the easiest way i i have a, the d hole the 12 foot 12 fret d hole which i consider like a rhythm guitar because it's really bass and mid-rangey mm-hmm. and after the seventh fret it kind of disappears weirdly uh it just is not as present but up in the lower end register it just kind of pops and then the other one the the crocker is, is like actually more of a lead instrument and just kind of you can hear it over a roaring conversation kind of thing um and really just cuts through like treble and top end it's really interesting the, the dynamic between the two yeah that's cool um, I've, I've been listening to your album the waterfall way that's your oh yeah yeah your debut yeah. album there's yeah. um it's not. There's a real. Um, I, I guess growl. I'm using that word again. Um, yeah, yeah. In the notes, is, is that the crocker I'm probably hearing when you? Yeah. So I'm playing. I'm that? playing the Piers Crocker one. Yeah, guitar. And yeah, my yeah. the other one's made by a guy in England called John Lavoy. It's okay. been a great guitar. It's. Um, and it's true. Both both of the traditional sort of woods like the the Lavoy's got rosewood back and sides and spruce top. Um, and the other one's got yeah spruce and palisander like a New Guinea rosewood. So both similar in, okay. in timbers, um, mahogany neck and I think probably rosewood board. I think yeah. Um, yeah but sonically the the um, the Lavoy twelve fret is in the low and it's the rhythm guitar and it's low in the mix. Um, and the lead just kind of just sits on the top. Sonically, they just match really nicely. Yeah, cool. Yeah. What are you doing for gigs and things? Uh, are you amplifying or are you micing them up? Yeah, it's um, they're impossibly difficult to amplify, and I'm still experimenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, at the moment, I've got a little um, piezo bug bug thing that sort of sits on the top of the guitar, okay. and it's made by a a, a Dutch. Um, he makes he makes picks and sort of pickups and things. He's called Manoush Guitars. Uh, sorry, yeah, Manoush Manoushpicks.com. He's in um a place called Appledorn in um in the Netherlands. And um at the moment I'm using that with um or that with a microphone or without a microphone. Okay. Um yeah. and actually it really depends on the situation. If it's like a little concert you can just play into a microphone. Um and the other setup is like the no mess no no fuss. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, a little single coil um, electric pickup that I sort of just clip onto the sound hole. Okay. Because um, towards the end of the fifties, the French guys were doing that. There was a a guy in Paris um, making pickups. His name was uh, okay, sorry, I can't remember his name, but it was called the Steamer pickup. I think it's Yves Gwyn. I think his name was. Um, and he he made a single coil pickup with the volume. Um, volume knob on, on on it incorporated in it and um and that's the later period of Django so from the 50s till he sort of passed away that's that's the sound he had he okay. was amplified with a with a, the small tube amplifier yeah so I I have that set up as well and that's really good for noisy environments or when I feel like feel like <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah so I haven't quite figured out the acoustic um sound it's just an ongoing thing I've got a Got that piezo bug with a pre- with a preamp. When I can, I'd like to blend that with a microphone, but it's not always practical. Um, and if I do a concert, sometimes I just play into a microphone or use a pickup. So it just varies. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. If there isn't a consistent um, 
yeah, they're really hard to. It's really hard to um, um, amplify them and EQ them, unfortunately, for live environments, especially in noisy environments. So okay. the best thing, the best thing I, if anyone's interested, I think the easiest thing to do is just get the pickup, like the electric pickup. Um, forget the acoustic sound until you can play in quieter environments yeah, or right. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I guess the Americans have. Um, with the, the Gibson Martin thing that got the undersaddle technology already kind of been explored. Um, and it's like the, the French end of things is really late to the party with technology. And yeah. Yeah. Because you can't, yeah. I People guess with are trying the, all kinds of. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I guess with the bridge design, the tailpiece and the bridge, it's not really. Yeah. You might not yeah. have much of an opportunity to whack a piezo yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah, um, um, I play with uh, another guitarist in a band called Spyglass Gypsies, um, and he has the exact guitar that I have. Like he's got a Lavoie, and he's got a piezo built into his um, his bridge. So that's oh, okay. that's one that's one way to do it. The other way is to have one that sticks on, which is what I'm using, or you yeah. use a microphone. Um, yeah, but it's notoriously difficult. He gets quite a good sound with the piezo, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's still difficult. Yeah, if it's, it's a really noisy environment, if you're playing like a you know function or something, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. difficult. Yeah. yeah, it's very difficult. So I guess it's, that's just the nature of a predominantly acoustic instrument. Um, yeah, in any yeah. live environment, isn't it? In any yeah, exactly yeah. But it's got such a distinct tone. Um, yeah, I guess you're struggling to make yeah. sure you that that carries through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yet to crack the code on that one. So <laughs> I feel like I have a win and then it's like, oh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when, it's ongoing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. When did you start traveling to Europe for uh, to um, further your career and your, your study? It was probably – I made the first trip around 2013. It was um, It was actually by – the first time was very, very much by accident. It was, it was like uh, – was with my partner at the time, and we at the time, and we had a stopover in Paris, and I'm like, great, we're here, we're going to go here and here. We went to a couple of different clubs and guitar shops, and then I was like, I've got to come back, I've got to come back. And then a couple of years later, we did did that again, and um, in July, there's a end of July, sorry, end of June, early July, there's a festival um, outside of Paris, a place called um, originally it was a place called Saint-Marcel, which was uh, it's where Django Reinhardt spent his last five, ten years of his life, and it was—it's a little village. Um, the Seine runs through it, and he—he he lived there and um, played guitar and fished and played billiards and did the occasional gig. He was kind of semi-retired to a point at that stage. Um, so the festival um, used to be um, in that village. There's a little island that he actually. Um, you can access via a little footbridge and it was actually set up on this island. It's very, very small, like a football field, I guess, but narrow, maybe a football field in length, but like maybe actually in width as well, perhaps they kind of tapered off at the end and um, to be, they'd sort of cut that island in half for the big stage, which would, the speakers would point one way. And on the other side of that would be a little, uh, like a market of Lucia's like, Lucius from Europe would come with their instruments and display them for sale. And in each one of those, um, Lucius tents became like a little mini concert. The gypsies would come and they would play these guitars and they would draw huge crowds, which the Lucius wanted because of, oh, this guy's playing this guitar. Sounds great. I'll buy it. 
Yeah, yeah. So each one of those became um, a concert in itself, almost detracting from whatever was happening on the main stage. It was really amazing. Um, but because of flooding and um, and because of the, you know, some terrorist business, um, they they decided to move it to a different site. Now it's at Fontainebleau at, in the um, in the grounds of the Chateau de Fontainebleau. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of it's kind of lost. It's not doesn't have the charm of what it once had with the river and because artists would you know they'd more barges on the on the island and artists would be like that would be the artist area you know you get so that you'd be kind of hanging out on these barges that would be like the green rooms and stuff and and it was because it was so small and compact everyone that you'd sort of have a record of would be wandering around it was really really quite it was really insane (laughs) so you walk 10 feet and then there's you know cousins of the guitarists that were played with Django. He walks this way and, you know, there's, you know, Borelli Legrand, one of the greatest. Or, you know, they're all kind of, all the stars walk around trying guitars out and, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out. It's very, very much about community, you know. It's really quite, <laughs> it's quite fascinating. Yeah, so cool. I can't, yeah, going there. And then, yeah, so I've just been making annual trips since about 2016 okay. after those first yeah. two sporadic ones to answer your question a long way around yeah no that's cool that <laughs> um, paints the picture that sounds yeah, amazing yeah but in that time I've made every possible mistake an Australian tourist can make so um, I try and help anyone who's interested because I've done some stuff where I've taken the wrong buses and I've ended up in weird places and yeah. you know <laughs> you know being when you're over overseas from Australia, you've got to organise everything otherwise. There's no sort of margin. You want to be in the action as soon as you can. You yeah, know, right. It's all the transport hiccups. I kind of know, know yeah. how to get there now. And yeah. it's not really – nothing is quite written down. So um, even the festival's going, people tend to stay at a place not far from there. It's like a little camping site. Um, maybe it's now probably about five kilometres from that new festival site. And it's just a small caravan park that's on, again on the Seine, and um, just the greatest musicians just hang out and play guitar for, for seven days, and it and it doesn't stop. Music doesn't stop. That's it's awesome, incredible. Man. That's yeah. So, cool. so yeah. So and then really incredible things happen between the hours of like two and five, and especially when the the bands finish at the festival, people. You know, the artists come over and you end up seeing these amazing jam sessions with unlikely kind of pairings of, you know, young people with older established musicians where you see young prepubescent boys shredding incredibly better than anyone here in Australia. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it's quite quite a thing to watch and to be involved with, you know. Um, and I... I, I got the you know i've got a small tent that's big enough for my body <laughs> my guitar okay, okay. Uh, and i camp and um initially i would be on the sort of outside edge of things and i've gradually kind of graduated to bigger and better scenes but you know it kind of you don't invite yourself in you've got to be kind of come come you know you can't just barge in and play because you get kind of you know told off or whatever yeah, you've got right. to kind of you okay. kind of and you work your way in, and, mm-hmm. um, and every year it gets you know, slightly nuttier with who, I, who I've played with. It's um, anyway, <laughs> people just go, "Oh, you, you Australian? Yeah, come, come," you know. Oh, and apparently, funny. I look like I look like a I look like a French guitarist. Apparently, 
because okay. I've got a beard. And, I've got a beard and long hair. I look like a guy called Stefan Remble, apparently. <laughs> so it's like, hey, it's great. It's Stefan Remble. Come. <laughs> Stefan Remble. I've had come you know. Stefan Remble on a kangaroo. <laughs> okay. I roll my eyes. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. That's cool, um, man. Yeah. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool. Are we... Um, like we were saying just before we started recording this interview, so I was in Paris um, in June, probably similar time to you. And um, one thing we noticed, we're staying in in the city, um, and on Friday night there was music everywhere on the streets, yeah. every corner, like just yeah. on on sidewalks, um, outside cafes and things. Saturday night really quiet, which was. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Maybe just where yeah. I was. But the Friday nights, there was music everywhere. It was wonderful and uh, lots of guitar playing. And yeah. Lots of cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think you get the, the acoustic guitar thing once you go to Paris and you live in the apartments and uh-huh. think, how could you drag an amp around? You yeah, know? yeah. And that's what a lot of it is as well. Sure. Acoustic guitar, you carry your pickup with you and there's a house amplifier or something. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, I wouldn't want to be a drummer in Paris or, you know. Double bass players must have heaps of fun, yeah. Um, you know, because <laughs> of the small metro. spaces and the net metro, the narrow staircases. And yeah, it just makes. I think it makes sense for everybody, and yeah. and because of the history of you know swing music, um, people love it and study it. And there is a scene of young Parisian guitar players. It's, they're all formidable and super competitive, uh-huh. and always always pushing each other to be better and. It's a real, you know, melting pot of kind of, I don't know, great generation of musicians in Paris at the moment. Tell me, um, tell me about the yeah. the Osmanouche, uh festival. It's been running for quite some time. Sure, and I guess sure. aims to bring some of that here in Australia. Yeah, um, it's been running for um, about thirteen years. This is my third year running it. Um, um, I inherited it from. A uh, guy that was a mentor to me. His name is Ewan McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, um, I guess, from the same generation of musicians as, as uh, Ian Date. So, um, which I kind of think I'd pair them in with being the first generation of musicians that would have played this. I think we would have been, you know, playing it professionally, or I guess there were people doing it before, but you know, they were doing it to a level. Um, and he and you, uh, Ewan and Ian started this thing, this festival, um, and then um, ran it um, at the Brisbane Jazz Club. And and uh, Ewan sadly passed away uh, two years ago. It's coming up to two years now. Um, and when he was sick, he sort of rang me up and went, "Hey man, can you um, you know, you want to take it over?" And I, I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. I thought he just wanted help with it. it was I kind of. Yeah, I'll do some I'll do some voluntary work, you know. Um, he was kind of like a giant lion of a man. He was tall and big and had this amazing um, aura about him. And I just would never see him as being sick, you know. Um, but he's, he, yeah, so he he passed it on to me. And um, so Ewan was kind of an early champion of, of me, really. Like, um, you know, I, I went over to Brisbane the first time I flew back in 2009. The festival been running for a long time, and he kind of encouraged me along. And I remember being that green, and I was studying the chords to things on the fly, being, "Oh, I'm going to jam with people." I had <laughs> been nervous about jamming gypsy jazz because there was no one to play with in Sydney because the pros kind of did their own thing, and right, right. and it was kind of you know I didn't know what they were doing. 
um, they kept they kept things to themselves, I guess. Um, they just they did um, they played in in cafes and then did functions and stuff. They weren't doing so many. I, from what I gather, I mean, there's just no information about it. Pre-internet, I guess. Um, so I, I finally discovered about the Osmanish festival and I plucked up the courage to go and. Um, yeah, and then I, then I tried to go as often as I could after that. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I hope yeah, that answers, cool. answers your question. Um, yeah, and, and down down the line when I was playing this music, um, when I could afford it, I'd get Ewan to come down and um, we do we do a guitar workshop or we do some we do a run down south and Canberra or uh, we play in, you know we you know, we put bands together and play. Um, and I, and I, I got to know him quite well over the years. And so, yeah, I'm quite grateful for that opportunity because um, he could have asked anybody else, but, he, you know, he asked me why in Sydney to run our festival in Brisbane. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so it's, it, to answer the question about it's on, um, it's in November. Um, it's usually the last weekend of November, um, but this year it's like 28th of November to the 1st of December. And basically, um, it's 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 specialised in gypsy jazz and the sort of French music or the music of Django Reinhardt, and we have I try and um, I try and get bands that are releasing albums that have you know um, things to you know things to present, and um, so I guess I get there's three sets a night, um, and everyone gets to present their own version of what they think it is you know the music is their own take on it and the third set is more of a jam session so um it's more of the repertoire that you'd hear um like general repertoire like your minor swing and stuff like that um and um you get people from all over australia and and we try and get at least one artist from um from europe um so uh we've this year we've got a guy called Lolo meyer who's a um He's a Dutch guitarist. He's uh, the cousin of uh, Stockelo Rosenberg, who people might know from the Rosenberg Trio. Um, he's a very quiet guy, but he's very—he's a very melodic player. Very, yeah, everything's clear and melodic, and he's not a sh- like he's not a shreddy kind of show-offy kind of guy. Like some of them, some of them, some of them can be, um, but yeah, he's melodic and and very. Um, he makes statements in with music, I guess. He tells a story. It's very conversational, I guess. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. And in the Excellent. past, we've had um, we had a friend of mine, um, Irene Ippenberg, um, and we've had um, Hank Marvin has played. Um, Ian Date plays every year. Um, who else has been? Um, just, just to back up a little, Hank Marvin. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. a recent discovery by me that he's uh, he's way into this stuff. Yeah, he's he's totally into it. He's got, um, yeah, he's incredible. Um, wow. He has a band, and he's, yeah. he's 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 done tours of Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, because he's living in. Um, is he in Perth nowadays? He's in Perth. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Perth, yeah. He's uh, he's sat in with. Uh, he's played with uh, one of my bands, Spyglass Gypsies. He's played, with, and uh, every time we're in Perth, we he comes and he's been to the festival about well f- past three years in a row and 
there's an interview with him by my friend Irene. She's a musician and a painter, and she's also a videographer. And there's a she's got a website called uh, sorry a, a YouTube page called Irene's Gypsy Jazz Adventures. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, uh, and she's got she did an interview with him, so it's quite interesting because she she focuses more about his you know, gypsy jazz connection. But he he I think he go would go to the festival every year for a long time, and he's played on the main stage. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, he's had a he's had a interest in it for a very very long time. Yeah, wow, amazing. Yeah, but when you hear him play with acoustic guitar, it's still Frank Marvin. It's, yeah, really. <laughs> it's that tone. It's the same that tone, that wow. feel, that, that phrasing, and everything is really precise with Hank. Like his endings are really kind of like they turn on a dime, and you know the band is like super tight, you know, and everything's kind of you know super polished. It's really yeah, fantastic. <laughs> nice, very cool. He's a, he's a sweet character. He's just a fellow nerd like us. You know, yeah, yeah. corner you and say, "Hey, what what pick are you using?" You know, <laughs> I didn't mention this, but the picks for Gypsy Jazz are very specific, like you know, you know, uh, handmade kind of things. Um, oh, okay. Uh, you know, two millimeter upwards. Some people have three, four millimeter picks. Wow. You know, I used to go to a button shop in Newtown and make my own and make my own oh, out of really? carbon fiber. You know? <laughs> wow, that's cool. Fiberglass back in the day because they just really you get a nice tone. Okay. And um, at least you use tortoise shell and buttons off great coats and stuff. Okay. I think it comes from more mandolin tradition rather than oh, okay. anything else. So like yeah. a smaller kind of a pick as well? No, um, the standard size, okay. but they're just, they're just kind of um, – they tend to be thick, like two mil – is kind of a standard up to I, I always start off playing a three mil pick and I've okay. kind of gone down over the years because the materials have gotten better so the, the sound is um having a lighter weight pick is a bit, bit better I think right just, it doesn't matter as much tonally yeah I wonder if originally that was part of the volume thing having a big thick pick and then yeah it ends yeah. up being part of the the genre yeah because they would use they would use turtle shell back in the day yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. I've actually got some tourist picks that I bought in Paris, but it was kind of this guy that would go around to antique shops and buy, you know, uh, carapaces, a tortoise shell okay. that we use, you know, okay. as antiques, and he would yeah. repurpose them into picks. And so, I've, yeah, they're quite expensive, but the sound is incredible. So I only use them for recording. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but I don't, I wouldn't, yeah, we don't, yeah, they were, they're reused. They're not, um, yeah, not yep. um, yeah, we're not killed on purpose. <laughs> yeah, they're you know no, antique. That's the way to do it. Lampshades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've, uh, they've already yeah. gone. Those turtles. They've already. Yeah, they're already yeah. gone. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. you're doing a bunch of solo dates and um, yeah, tell, yeah. Tell me about leading your own band. Okay, well, um, it's kind of a long story, but I sort of mentioned it. But um, when I was interested. In, I'm going to go back a little bit, actually, if you don't mind. Um, when I left sure. my locksmithing job, yeah. um, um, I would visit um, – actually, I'll go back. When I was a kid, I would um, visit my grandmother in Bellingham, and um, I'd stay in her front room, and at night I'd hear this guy playing guitar, and he was a, he was a gypsy jazz guitarist. His name was Paul Buyani. Um, and I never, I never met him when I was visiting when I was younger, but, um, 
I just like he'd practice at night on the balcony of his of his place playing French waltzes and Django solos and stuff and classical guitar. And I'd, I'd sort of listen to him all night, going, "Wow, who's this guy?" You know. Uh, and so when I left my job um, to be music full time musician, I kind of went, "I'm going to look this guy up, you know, get some lessons," because that was kind of one of the angles. I wasn't playing music seriously at that point. I was just playing sort of straight ahead jazz and rock and. But it was a direction that I wanted to go in. Um, so I went to Bellington Estate for a week and looked him up and, um, yeah, and had some lessons with him, which led to him asking me to do a gig um, where he had a sort of Django show, um, uh, like a biographical Django show. Um, and because I didn't know, um, because I didn't know the repertoire, I I rang up uh, Nigel Day, who's a Sydney guitarist, professional guy, and I got some lessons with him, which turned into a band called Gadjo Guitars. And we were in, the band's still going. Uh, it's probably been out for about seven years. And then I would play with um, with him. I guess it was um, learning how to play the music properly, professionally. Um, and he taught me a lot, a lot of tunes and how to solo and how to show up and how to dress. So I owe a great deal of um, debt to Nigel. Um, um, and then as time went on, I kind of got more confidence and um, was wanting to play different tunes. And, and just I did it mainly so I could push myself. Because um, in, in that role, I was, I was sort of the second second fiddle. And it was like, can I can I lead a band? Can I record an album and make it interesting? Can I play leads on all the songs, make it coherent? It's just trying to be pushing myself a bit, um, thinking, because wherever I'd learn, I'd bring back to whatever project I'm working on. It's just kind of the next stage in development. So I guess um, that's a long-winded answer, I guess. It's just um, I did it so that I could push myself and to see if I could do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And and you're doing some, some great gigs, some great dates. Tell me yeah, about um yeah. Sorry, tell me that's about... a long, long no, no, that's no cool, man. That's great. That's no, good to get the background and um yeah. and stuff about Robert Date, that's really cool. Yeah. This is yeah. all good stuff. This is gonna be good. Yeah, yeah. Um tell me about five star caravan. That's uh, another project. Oh, okay. You um up. it's a reasonably new uh new project. Um yeah, uh we all we all play together in other bands and um it just sort of came up randomly and um, it's put together by a singer by the name of uh, Rebecca Neville mm-hmm. and um, uh, um, the bass player Stan plays in Gadget Guitars and um, and he was one of those early bass players at Kate Dunbar's gig. So I sort of grew up watching him play. So it's kind of cool to hang out with him and play with him. And um, John Blenkhorn's also in that band who's the guy that um, I first saw playing the Gypsy Jazz guitar. <laughs> Uh, you know, 20 years ago, yeah, and wow. uh, cool. Mark, yeah, it's all very connected. Yeah. And Marcus is a collaborator, a friend of mine, and um, he recorded the album and played violin on it. He's got a studio in the back of his house, yeah. So, but my other main project is one a band called um, Spyglass Gypsies, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm more of a rhythm guitar player in that band, and it's led by a guy called Richard Ashby and also Loretta Palmiero. Um, and it's like gypsy jazz meets kind of it's almost world music now, I guess. It's a lot of uh, uh Portuguese influence from Loretta being 
um, sort of Portuguese descent, and uh, there's a lot of different rhythms involved in that band as well. So that's kind of Gadget Guitars and Spyglass are my main okay, um, bands. Okay. And yeah, the Five Star Caravan is just like new, brand new. So I'm not sure what's um, what's in store in the future, but it's kind of cool to play with the older guys that have been doing it, you know, longer than me. And yeah, and John um, is a very lyrical player, and uh, it's good to watch. You know, he's really great quarterly, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, my mate. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Now, good to see you, you're exploring different avenues of. Uh, yeah, yeah, the same coin, I guess. In a yeah, way. that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, so I guess yeah, mainly yeah, but Spyglass Gypsies are a great band as well, and with the uh, play and just a great accordion player in that band as well, and nice. um, and those three guys kind of play the melodies and. Um, they wrote some beautiful. It's more, like actually more of a uh, originals project. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, each a lot of those everyone composes for that band. Um, yeah, and they're great, great musicians and great friends. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Cameron, what's the best way for people to keep up to date then with your stuff and and okay, some of these um, projects? Currently, I mean, um, I haven't made a website. I'm just on Facebook, so. I think it's Cameron Jones Guitar, like facebook.com, Cameron yeah. Jones Guitar. Um, Osmanushfestival.com. Um, and there's a Facebook page for Osmanush. And I tend to put nerdy guitar stuff on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm all for more nerdy guitar stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, it's been so good talking to you. I've, yeah. I've learnt heaps. It's it's so oh, much cool. fun digging. It's into... a whole world of it. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. It's like um, it's like the branch of a the jazz guitar tree. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, it's a it's, it's almost a world in itself, and it's you've got different paths you can follow with it. So there's yeah, it's a lot of unexplored territory for people who are interested in guitar. I yeah, think. excellent, man. That's so good. Um, so yeah, I'll include links to all this stuff, the festival yeah, and, cool. and those bands yeah. and things in, in the yeah. show notes. And um, yeah, if you're in Brisbane or if you want to fly up, um, it's worth checking out. It's one of those things that you can bring your guitar to uh-huh. and jam with the people playing at the festival. Wow, that's very cool. And if you if you you may even get an opportunity to play on the stage during the third set. That that sort of stuff happens. It's um, um, I mean, I mean, I played rock music. I played jazz and, and and metal and stuff and this is the only thing that really opened doors to a community for me like i went to brisbane that one time in 2009 i met a bunch of people who are now lifelong friends um i know everybody i know a lot of people in different st- states of australia or overseas that play this music and it just opens up doors for people like in terms of you know a community it's um, incredible yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And um, everyone's just really quite welcoming and encouraging. And yeah, I guess it's something that you and Mackenzie was kind of keen on doing, like making it open to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not like a club, like a special club. It's like, you know, if you're interested, come, you know, learn the tunes, come play, you know. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Sorry um, if I waffled on to. Too much. This is the um, show for this, exactly yeah, that, so it's all good. Yeah, I kind of because um, this is a long. It took me a long time to get to this point. Like I, I'm just a guitar head that is. Yeah, yeah. And what I tell my students is where you start is not where you end up. Yeah, I started playing, yeah, wanting to be in Bon Jovi, and now I'm playing 
gypsy swing music from yeah. the 30s and 40s and stuff you don't know where you're going to end up just pursue um start just pursue music you know and see what see where it leads you All right, there you go. My conversation with Cameron Jones. And I tell you, man, the music has certainly led uh, him on many very exciting adventures with more to come. So it was very cool to have him on the show. Now, listen, if you're in Sydney, Cameron will be playing on the 31st of October at the Django Bar, a very cool venue in Marrickville. If you look at our show notes, there's links to Cameron's artist pages, which will um, no doubt have more information about that show. And also about the Oz Manouche Festival. The links for that are also in the notes. And uh, that looks to be a fantastic lineup this year. All right, time for me to go. Thank you so much for joining me. My name's Matt Wakeling, and you have been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Catch you next time. <laughs>